Fusion, the international science radio show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. <laughs> the good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro-seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Listen to amazing and bizarre science infuse into your brain. I'm Ian Wolfe. On this edition, be serenaded by sponge music, get a grant for casual sex, and get vaccinated against HIV. So here's Victoria Bond with the HIV vaccine news. Now, if you've been listening to Diffusion a little while, you may have caught on to the fact that I love, love vaccines. And this one is particularly interesting. As reported by the BBC, a new vaccine can protect macaques against the monkey equivalent of HIV, which is called SIV, and it could provide a fresh approach to an HIV vaccine. U.S. researchers said the vaccine offered protection to 13 out of 24 rhesus macaques treated in the experiment. And in 12 of these monkeys, the vaccine was still effective 12 months later. This work was published in the journal Nature, and the authors claim it could significantly contribute to the development of an effective HIV-AIDS vaccine. So what exactly did they do? They gave 24 healthy rhesus macaques a vaccine containing a genetically modified form of the virus, rhesus cytomegalovirus. So this is a completely different virus to HIV, and it's also a virus that is very common among human beings. The vaccine was engineered to produce antigens to attack SIV, the monkey equivalent of HIV, and it basically worked by stimulating the production of a particular type of blood cell called the effector memory T cells, which can remain vigilant in the body long after an infection has abated, which provides long-term protection. T cells are basically like your soldiers in the body. They, They go around and they viciously attack anything that they recognize as foreign. There was also evidence that this vaccine all but eradicated traces of SIV in the monkeys, something which the authors claim had been unprecedented in HIV research. Professor Sir Andrew Michael of Oxford University explains, I'm excited by the science because it really demonstrates that it may be possible to eradicate the HIV virus by a strong immune response. But of course, there are safety issues. The potential safety and regulatory issues in introducing CMV into humans is difficult, even though many of us already carry the virus. CMV is not totally benign, particularly among pregnant women. Professor Robin Shattuck of Imperial College in London agrees that safety would be a key. The breakthrough here is in using viral-delivered vaccines that persist, essentially using an engineered virus to thwart a pathogenic virus. The tricky part would be showing it safe and effective in humans. So it's a cost-benefit ratio thing, because 99% of people in sub-Saharan African are CMV positive, and half of the people in the developed world are. So we know a lot about this virus. It's hardly an unknown entity, but it, it can be pathogenic in certain instances, especially in vulnerable populations and immunocompromised people. HIV vaccines have been very, very interesting and to be honest, pretty disappointing so far. It's been very challenging because essentially the HIV virus is constantly mutating, so it's very hard to pin down something that our immune system can consistently attack. So far, though, there have been some promising results. 
In 2009, researchers in Thailand published in The Lancet the results of an experimental HIV vaccine, which they said reduced by nearly a third the risk of contracting HIV. And then last year, a study in the New England Journal of Medicine suggested that a drug that we're currently using to treat HIV-positive patients may also offer protection against contracting the virus. This combination drug is called Truvada, and it was tested in over 2,000 men. And the result suggested that it reduces the chance of male-to-male -male HIV infection by about 44%. Despite these encouraging results, there have also been setbacks. There has been a paper recently published in the Lancet Infectious Disease Reports on the failure of an HIV vaccine trial in South Africa. This vaccine, which is called MRKAD5 HIV-1, catchy name, involved 801 patients and there was no evidence that was found that the vaccine was effective, so the trial was ended early. Martin Maria is a PhD student researching electroacoustic music and digital musical instruments. He's aiming at establishing a clear and natural link between gesture and sound. I spoke to Martin at Dorkbot Sydney in Chippendale, where he performed with his musical digital sponge. My sponge is a musical interface that I built and I, I built and I used to uh, use it to perform electronic music. So the sponge is basically a piece of foam in well, two layers of foam between which sensors are well, are sensors are in there. These sensor data is sent to computer wirelessly, and then uh, well, there's a mapping done to musical uh, musical parameters inside the computer, and hopefully, uh, what comes out of it is musical and interesting. Awesome. So, what inspired you to build this? Well, my background is into electroacoustic music. Uh, for those unfamiliar with electroacoustic music, I'd say it's a uh, well. It's closer to sound art, maybe, than to uh, to music. The, and the tradition of electroacoustic music is to play back the music without any performance aspect. Well, almost not any performance aspect. So, music is played back. Um, it can be very interesting. There is some very interesting music, but for a concert, it's a bit boring for the audience uh, sitting there not seeing anything. So what I wanted to do is being able to keep this aspect of uh, working on the on 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 the sound aspects that I cannot work on using traditional acoustic instruments. Uh, <clears throat> But having, uh, while well, trying to establish a uh, link between gesture and sound, so something that would make it interesting for people to watch, and uh, that would allow the same kind of possibility that uh, one can have uh, in a studio. So it's more hands-on about what you do with your hands and to make the soundscape. Exactly. It's a relatively conservative approach in the sense that uh, it's similar. I try to mimic an acoustic instrument in the ways it reacts. So uh, you have to um, to inject energy, and in when you play the sponge, if you want it to, to make sound, you cannot just leave it there and do nothing. It's, so, like an acoustic instrument, you need energy to make to make sound, and that's something I think anyone can relate to because it's. It, uh, 
even though when building electronic instruments like that, we do not have to respect the laws of physics, we can do anything. Yes. Uh, I try to mimic the laws of physics so that people can understand that I'm actually controlling the sounds and that I'm doing something. Okay, so the sensors, what sort of sensors are in there? Uh, I've got 3D accelerometers, two of them, and I've got pressure sensors, uh, FSRs uh, for sensing resistors, and uh, I have a few buttons. So it's quite minimalistic, there's not much going on in there. And uh, the focus was more at the mapping stage. So I, I, there's a, I do a feature extraction of the sensor data, so I try to, to extract uh, as much information as possible from the limited amount of sensors there, there is in the sponge. So, for example, uh, to sense the twist of the sponge, you can twist the sponge and you can fold it. So you can differentiate the two accelerometers that are uh, uh, in different positions. So accelerometers can sense tilt, and if one is tilted and the other is not, it means the sponge is, uh, is twisted. So uh, this is a feature that's extracted. Uh, I also use a lot of filters. To, uh, I, I use the high, fre high frequencies from the, from the accelerometers separate from the low frequencies. So. This way, uh, I can use the same sensor to trigger different things, have different controls depending on the frequency of what's happening. Um, yeah, that's the uh, ideas behind mapping that I used. Terrific. Well, I look forward to hearing it. Thank you very much. Thank you. So, what the sponge is, is two layers of foam uh, wrapped inside a piece of fabric. And in between those two layers of foam, there are sensors, two accelerometers, and two force sensing resistors. I'm going to talk a little more about those sensors later. But there's, the idea is to sense, detect the shocks, like uh, that the shock might tap on the sponge, the fold and the twist of the sponge. Uh, some people might wonder how I can detect the twist with, uh, with accelerometers. There are two accelerometers. And one at this end and one at the other end. So accelerometers, as most of you prob probably know, can detect tilt. And if the two accelerometers don't have the same tilt, well, I know that this one just twisted. Right? Same things for the fold. So, and FSRs, uh, well, they're for sensing resistors, so they detect when I squeeze. There are two FSRs, one here and one here. Uh, it's pretty obvious when I play it where the FSRs are. In designing this sponge, I had a relatively conservative approach. Uh, there are many, many, many new musical inter interfaces out there. Uh, but the sponge is, uh, well, it is not more extraordinary than, than, than the other ones. But it's, uh, the approach is conservative in the sense that I try to mimic the, the behavior of acoustic instruments. I wanted to make sure that the audience can understand what I'm doing. Um, it is possible to go see a performance of electronic music with new interfaces, but I think that that's a personal feeling to have a real affordance from the new, inter the, the, the new interfaces. There has to be a clear link between gesture and sound. Otherwise, uh, if you don't understand, you cannot 
perceive any link between the gesture and the sound, uh, and the sound uh, well, seeing a laptop performance or just playback is pretty much the same thing. Uh, okay. Uh, so linking gesture and sound, and I've been trying to do that. To be able to do to, to link gesture and sound, things have to go relatively fast. Uh, the only way I've been able to make things go faster is uh, diminish the latency inside of the computer. Uh, I didn't say that. I'm going. Okay. <laughs> I'm trying to say like 10 things at the same time, sorry about that. I'm going to play the sponge a bit for you, you're going to hear how it sounds and you probably have a few questions and after I've played the sponge I'm going to come back on uh, more technical things and what is happening inside the computer with Super Collider and how the mapping of uh, sensor data to the sound is done. But,
That was Martin Marrier, a doctoral student in composition at the University of Montreal. His goal is to make performance of electronic music more playful and to improve the interaction with the audience. You can find out more about Martin's work and the Super Collider software that he uses at www.martinmarier.com. You're listening to Diffusion Science Radio. Send email to diffusion at 2SER.com. Brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network, into Sydney on 2SER, and over the internet on www.diffusionradio.com. Um, I've noticed you around. I find you very attractive. I've noticed you around. Um, I find you very attractive. Would you go to bed with me? Look, obviously, social psychology is the field to be in because you can get a grant <laughs> to look into casual sex for researchers. Wonderful. Where do I sign? Well, this is the thing. Apparently, most universities that have a medical school, such as the one that, that you're interested in, also do social psychology. And look, social psychology is where the interesting papers are. So the latest one that caught my eye is perceived Proposer Personality Characteristics and Gender Differences in Acceptance of Casual Sex Offers. This was published in the February 2011 volume of Journal of Personality and Social Psychology. The author is Terry D. Conley. Now, she's quoting a 1989 paper, so this is not the first time that casual sex has been funded by grants. In that, researchers or confederates as they were called in the paper, because basically they go out and pretend they're not doing research. They pretend they're just going out for casual sex. They wander the campus, they go up to people they like, and they ask them for casual sex. So they did Do this we in... know how they ask them? Well, this is the thing. I've only got the <laughs> abstracts here, okay. so we can discuss it briefly. I might have to obtain the papers and then go in detail about exactly what they did and how they said it. Mm. But it was pretty much left up to the research assistant's how to do this, I think. And this is part of the the idea is that what Dr. Conley's done is that she's looked at this paper by Clark and Hatfield, 1989, where the research assistants went out on campus and they asked people for sex. Now, <laughs> they made conclusions mm -hmm. based on the success of the men and the success of the women. And honestly, how successful do we think research assistants would be at procuring sex? No offence to all <laughs> the diligent research assistants out there. I used to do research as well. But it's a control factor, right? They're all research assistants. So whatever the ability or inability is that you get from being a research assistant, it's the same for all of them because they're all research assistants. So it's a control factor. That's okay. Oh, well, you put it like that. Yes, I guess it does. So that's the original paper. Now, what they found was that the women did way better than the men. And so there's a theory about sexual strategies. And they looked into evolutionary psychology and they were basically saying, oh, look, the women wanted to know more about their partners than the men did because the men more commonly said yes to the women who asked them to come home with them. And therefore, what's going on is that the women wanted to know that the male partners had the status or the wealth or whatever it was that would make them more reproductively 
successful. So in their hindbrains, not in their conscious minds, of course. So this isn't a sexual strategy that would uh, enable them to produce more fit young. So this is the traditional thing from 1989, and obviously it fits in with earlier evolutionary psychology. Mm. What Terry Connolly did was she thought that that's probably not quite right. So she's looked at it again through more modern sexual strategy theory that it's not about necessarily reproduction, that that's not what motivates humans necessarily in most things. What motivates most humans most of the time is pleasure. Mm. The pleasure principle, not the... Re and reproduction happens almost as a byproduct of humans seeking pleasure is what she's talking about. So she's reproduced the original experiment looking more closely at what they actually said and how they said it, whereas the original paper mainly just looked at the results. Mm. So in this case, the paper will actually have what they said and how they said it. And once again, they found that the women were more successful than the men, but women and men agreed that female proposers were more intelligent, successful, and sexually skilled than men who made the same proposals. Now, considering they never met these people in their lives before, how do they know all this? Well, it's up to the skill of the person proposing casual sex. The way you sell yourself, I suppose. Maybe exactly. female researchers can sell themselves better than male researchers. Draw whatever conclusions you want from that. <laughs> so what they've done is they've also asked them questions. So they wanted them to imagine proposals from attractive and unattractive famous people, friends, same-gender individuals, for example. So they've got to imagine all sorts of fantasies and how they rated how likely they'd be to accept casual sex from these people. And so they put all these factors in and they found basically the extent to which women and men believed that the proposer would be sexually skilled predicted how likely they would be to engage in casual sex with this individual. So how do you give the impression that you're sexually skilled, I suppose, is the question. Well, this is the thing. So finally, they looked at these factors in the context of actual encounters from the participants' previous experiences and they found there were still large gender differences, in fact, even bigger gender differences, but it was more to do with perceived personality characteristics of the female versus male proposers than with gender differences. So that sexual pleasure and anticipated sexual pleasure is the main difference. So this is one of those papers that I need to find to find out what they said and how they said it. And I think we should all go to our university libraries <laughs> and ask for perceived proposal personality characteristics and gender differences in acceptance of casual sex offers by Conley Terry D. in the Journal of Personality and Social Psychology, Volume 102, February 2011, 309 to 329. Would you go to bed with me? All from us this time on Diffusion. You can send email to diffusion at 2SER.com. That's diffusion at 2SER.com. And tell us your thoughts, feelings and stories. If you'd like to be on radio and you live in Sydney, we need more volunteers on Diffusion. Subscribe to our podcast on the Diffusion website, www.diffusionradio.com. 
That's www.diffusionradio.com. Contributing to the program were Victoria Bond and Patrick Ruby. I produce Diffusion in the studios of 2SER in Sydney. Diffusion is broadcast nationally via the Community Radio Network. I'm Ian Wolfe. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more science wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio.